Chapter Twenty Two The Ordeal of Richard Feverel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Ordeal of Richard Feverel by George Meredith. Chapter Twenty Two Indicates the Approaches of Fever. For three weeks Richard had to remain in town and endure the teachings of the system in a new atmosphere. He had to sit and listen to men of science who came to renew their intimacy with his father, and whom of all men his father wished him to respect and study. Practically scientific men being, in the baronet's estimation, the only minds thoroughly mated and enviable. He had to endure an introduction to the Grandisons, and meet the eyes of his kind, haunted as he was by the foolish young fellow. The idea that he might by any chance be identified with him held the poor youth in silent subjection. And it was horrible, for it was a continued outrage on the fair image he had in his heart. The notion of the world laughing at him because he loved sweet Lucy stung him to momentary frenzies, and developed premature misanthropy in his spirit. Also, the system desired to show him whither young women of the parish lead us, and he was dragged about at night-time to see the sons and daughters of darkness, after the fashion prescribed to Mr. Thompson, how they danced and ogled down the high road to perdition. But from this sight, possibly the teacher learnt more than his pupil, since we find him seriously asking his meditative hours in the notebook, wherefore wild oats are only of one gender, a question certainly not suggested to him at Raynham, and again, whether men might not be attaching to rigid and importance, to a subject with a dotted tail apparently, for he gives it no other in the notebook but, as I apprehend, he had come to plead in behalf of women here, and had deduced something from positive observation. To Richard the scenes he witnessed were strange wild pictures, likely, if anything, to have increased his misanthropy, but for his love. Certain sweet little notes from Lucy sustained the lover during the first two weeks of exile. They seized and now Richard fell into such despondency that his father in alarm had to take measures to hasten their return to Raynham. At the close of the third week, Berry laid a pair of letters bearing the Raynham postmark on the breakfast table, and, after reading one attentively, the baronet asked his son if he was inclined to quit the metropolis. "'For Raynham, heir?' cried Richard, and relapsed, saying, as you will, aware that he had given a glimpse of the foolish young fellow. Barry accordingly received orders to make arrangements for their instant return to Raynham. The letter Sir Austin lifted his head from to bespeak his son's wishes was a composition of the wise youth Adrian's, and ran thus. Benson is doggedly recovering. He requires great indemnities." Happy when a faithful fool is the main sufferer in a household. I quite agree with you that our faithful fool is the best servant of great schemes. Benson is now a piece of history. 
I tell him that this is indemnity enough, and that the sweet muse usually insists upon gentlemen being half flayed before she will condescend to notice them. But Benson, I regret to say, rejects the comfort so fine a reflection should offer, and had rather keep his skin and live opaque. Heroism seems partly a matter of training. Faithful folly is Benson's nature. The rest has been thrust upon. The young person has resigned the neighborhood. I had an interview with the fair papist myself, and also with the man Blaze. They were both sensible, though one swore and the other sighed. She is pretty. I hope she does not paint. I can affirm that her legs are strong, for she walks to Bellingham twice a week to take her scarlet bath, when, having confessed and been made clean by the Romish unction, she walks back the brisker, of which my Protestant muscular systems is yet aware. It was on the road to Bellingham I engaged her. She is well in the matter of hair. Madame Godiva might challenge her. It would be a fair match. Has it never struck you that woman is nearer the vegetable than man? Mr. Blaze intends her for his son, a junction that every lover of fairy mythology must desire to see consummated. Young Tom is heir to all the agramens of the beast. The maids of Lowburn say, I hear, that he is a very proculus among them. Possibly the envious men say it for the maids. Beauty does not speak bad grammar, and altogether she is better out of the way. The other letter was from Lady Blandish, a lady's letter, and said, I have fulfilled your commission to the best of my ability, and heartily sad it has made me. She is indeed very much above her station. Pity that it is so. She is almost beautiful, quite beautiful at times, and not in any way what you have been led to fancy. The poor child had no story to tell. I have again seen her, and talked with her for an hour as kindly as I could. I could gather nothing more than we know. It is just a woman's history as it invariably commences. Richard is the god of her idolatry. She will renounce him, and sacrifice herself for his sake. Are we so bad? She asked me what she was to do. She would do whatever was imposed upon her, all but pretend to love another, and that she never would, and I believe never will. You know I am sentimental, and I confess we dropped a few tears together. Her uncle has sent her for the winter to the institution where it appears she was educated, and where they are very fond of her and want to keep her, which it would be a good thing if they were to do. The man is a good sort of man. She was entrusted to him by her father, and he never interferes with her religion, and is very scrupulous about all that pertains to it, though, as he says, he is a Christian himself. In the spring, but the poor child does not know this, she is to come back and be married to his lout of a son. I am determined to prevent that. May I not reckon on your promise to aid me? When you see her, I am sure you will. It would be sacrilege to look on and permit such a thing. You know they are cousins. She asked me where in the world there was one like Richard. What could I answer? They were your own words, and spoken with a depth of conviction. 
I hope he is really calm. I shudder to think of him when he comes, and discovers what I have been doing. I hope I have been really doing right. A good deed, you say, never dies, but we cannot always know. I must rely on you. Yes, it is, I should think, easy to suffer martyrdom when one is sure of one's cause, but then one must be sure of it. I have done nothing lately but to repeat to myself that saying of yours, number 54, chapter 7, P.S., and it has consoled me, I cannot say why, except that all wisdom consoles, whether it applies directly or not. For this reason, so many fall from God, who have attained to Him, that they cling to Him with their weakness, not with their strength. I like to know of what you are thinking when you compose this or that saying. What suggested it? May not one be admitted to inspect the machinery of wisdom? I feel curious to know how thoughts, real thoughts, are born. Not that I hope to win the secret. Here is the beginning of one, but we poor women can never put together even two of the three ideas which you say go to form a thought. When a wise man makes a false step, will he not go farther than a fool? It has just flitted through me. I cannot get on with Gibbon. So wait your return to recommence the readings. I dislike the sneering essence of his writings. I keep referring to his face, until the dislike seems to become personal. How different is it with Wordsworth! And yet I cannot escape from the thought that he is always solemnly thinking of himself, but I do reverence him. But this is curious. Byron was a greater egoist, and yet I do not feel the same with him. He reminds me of a beast of the desert, savage and beautiful, and the former is what one would imagine a superior donkey, reclaimed from the heathen to be, a very superior donkey, I mean, with great power of speech and great natural complacency, and whose stubbornness you must admire as part of his mission. The worst is that no one will imagine anything sublime in a superior donkey, so my simile is unfair and false. Is it not strange? I love Wordsworth best, and yet Byron has the greater power over me. How is that? Because, Sir Austin wrote beside the query in pencil, women are cowards and succumb to irony and passion rather than yield their hearts to excellence and nature's inspiration. The letter pursued, I have finished Boiardo and have taken up Berni. The latter offends me. I suppose we women do not really care for humor. You are right in saying we have none ourselves and cackle instead of laugh. It is true, of me at least, that Falstaff is only to us an incorrigible fat man. I want to know what he illustrates. And Don Quixote, what end can be served in making a noble mind ridiculous? I hear you say, practical. So it is. We are very narrow, I know, but we like wit, practical again. Or, in your words, when I really think they generally come to my aid, perhaps it is that it is often all your thought. We prefer the rapier thrust to the broad embrace of intelligence. He trifled with the letter for some time, re-reading chosen passages as he walked about the room, and considering he scarce knew what. 
There are ideas language is too gross for, and shape too arbitrary, which comes to us and have a definite influence upon us, and yet we cannot fasten on the filmy things and make them visible and distinct to ourselves, much less to others. Why did he twice throw a look into the glass in the act of passing it? He stood for a moment with head erect facing it. His eyes for the nonce seemed little to peruse his outer features, the grey gathered brows, and the wrinkles much action of them had traced over the circles half up his high straight forehead the iron-gray hair that rose over his forehead and fell away in the fashion of richard's plume his general appearance showed the tints of years but none of their weight and nothing of the dignity of his youth was gone it was so far satisfactory but his eyes were wide as one who looks at his essential self through the mask we wear Perhaps he was speculating as he looked on the sort of aspect he presented to the lady's discriminative regard. Of her feelings he had not a suspicion, but he knew with what extraordinary lucidity women can when it pleases them, and when their feelings are not quite boiling under the noonday sun, seize all the sides of a character and put their fingers on its weak point. He was cognizant of the total absence of the humorous in himself, the want that most shut him out from his fellows, and perhaps the clear-thoughted, intensely self-examining gentleman filmily conceived. Me also, in common with the poet, she gazes on as one of the superior, grey beasts. He may have so conceived the case. He was capable of that great-mindedness and could snatch at times very luminous glances at the broad reflector which the world of fact lying outside our narrow compass holds up for us to see ourselves in when we will. Unhappily, the faculty of laughter which is due to this gift was denied him, and having seen, he, like the companion of friend Balsam, could go no farther." for a good wind of laughter had relieved him of much of the blight of self-deception and oddness and extravagance had given a healthier view of our atmosphere of life but he had it not journeying back to bellingham in the train with the heated brain and brilliant eye of his son beside him sir austin tried hard to feel infallible as a man with a system should feel and because he could not do so after much mental conflict he descended to entertain a personal antagonism to the young woman who had stepped in between his experiment and success he did not think kindly of her lady blandish's encomiums of her behaviour and her beauty annoyed him forgetful that he had in a measure forfeited his rights to it he took the common ground of fathers and demanded why he was not justified in doing all that lay in his power to prevent his son from casting himself away upon the first creature with a pretty face he encountered deliberating thus he lost the tenderness he should have had for his experiment the living burning youth at his elbow and his excessive love for him took a rigorous tone it appeared to him politic 
reasonable and just that the uncle of this young woman who had so long nursed the prudent scheme of marrying her to his son should not only not be thwarted in his object but encouraged and even assisted at least not thwarted sir austin had no glass before him while these ideas hardened in his mind and he had rather forgotten the letter of lady blandish father and son were alone in the railway carriage both were too preoccupied to speak as they neared bellingham the dark was filling the hollows of the country over the pine hills beyond the station a last rosy streak lingered across a green sky richard eyed it while they flew along it caught him forward it seemed full of the spirit of his love and brought tears of mournful longing to his eyelids the sad beauty of that one spot in the heavens seemed to call out to his soul to swear to his lucy's truth to him was like the sorrowful visage of his fleur de luce as he called her appealing to him for faith that tremulous tender way she had of half closing and catching light on the nether lids when sometimes she looked up in her lover's face a look so mystic sweet that it had grown to be the fountain of his dreams he saw it yonder and his blood thrilled know you those wand-like touches of i know not what before which our grosser being melts and we much as we hope to be in the awaking stand etherealized trembling with new joy they come but rarely rarely even in love when we fondly think them revelations mere sensations they are doubtless and we rank for them no higher in the spiritual scale than so many translucent glorious polypi that quiver on the shores the hues of heaven running through them yet in the harvest of our days it is something for the animal to have had such mere fleshy polypian experiences to look back upon and they give him an horizon pale seas of luring splendour one who has had them when they do not bound him may find the isles of bliss sooner than another sensual faith in the upper glories is something let us remember says the pilgrim's scrip that nature though heathenish reaches at her best to the footstool of the highest she is not all dust but a living portion of the spheres in aspiration it is our error to despise her forgetting that through nature only can we ascend cherished trained and purified she is then partly worthy the divine mate who is to make her wholly so saint simeon saw the hog in nature and took nature for the hog it was one of these strange bodily exultations which thrilled the young man he knew not how it was for sadness and his forebodings vanished the soft wand touched him at that moment had sir austin spoken openly richard might have fallen upon his heart he could not he chose to feel injured on the common ground of fathers and to pursue his system by plotting lady blandish had revived his jealousy of the creature who menaced it and jealousy of a system is unreflecting and vindictive as jealousy of woman heathroots and pines breathed sharp in the cool autumn evening about the bellingham station richard stood a moment as he stepped from the train and drew the country air into his lungs with large heaves of his chest 
leaving his father to the felicitations of the station-master he went into the lowburn road to look for his faithful tom who had received private orders through berry to be in attendance with his young master's mare cassandra and was lurking in a plantation of firs unenclosed on the borders of the road where richard knowing his retainer's zest for conspiracy too well to seek him anywhere but in the part most favoured with shelter and concealment found him furtively whiffing tobacco what news tom is there an illness tom sent his undress cap on one side to scratch at dilemma an old agricultural habit to which he was still a slave in moments of abstract thought or sudden difficulty no i don't want the rake mr richard he whinnied with a false grin as he beheld his master's eye vacantly following the action speak out he was commanded i haven't had a letter for a week richard learnt the news he took it with surprising outward calm only getting a little closer to cassandra's neck and looking very hard at tom without seeing a speck of him which had the effect on tom of making him sincerely wish his master would punch his head at once rather than fix him in that owl-like way go on said richard huskily yes she's gone well tom was brought to understand he must make the most of trifles and recited how he had heard from a female domestic at belthorpe of the name of davenport formerly known to him that the young lady never slept a wink from the hour she knew she was going but sat up in her bed till morning crying most pitifully though she never complained hereat the tears unconsciously streamed down richard's cheeks tom said he had tried to see her but mr adrian kept him at work ciphering at a terrible sum that and nothing else all day saying it was to please his young master on his return likewise something in latin added tom namtive more sir not to make you mad sir he exclaimed with pathos the wretch had been put to acquire a latin declension tom saw her on the morning she went away he said she was very sorrowful looking and nodded kindly to him as she passed in the fly along with young tom blaze she have got uncommon kind eyes sir said tom and cryin don't spoil them for which his hand was wrenched tom had no more to tell save that in rounding the road the young lady had hung out her hand and seemed to move it forward and back as much as to say Goodbye, Tom. And though she couldn't see me, said Tom, I took off my hat. I did take it so kind of her to think of a chap like me. He was at high pressure sentiment, what with his education for a hero and his master's love stricken state. You saw no more of her, Tom? No, sir, that was the last. Then what was the last you saw of her, Tom? Well, sir, I saw nothing more. And so she went out of sight clean gone that she were sir why did they take her away what have they done with her where have they taken her to these red-hot questionings were addressed to the universal heaven rather than to tom why didn't she write they were resumed why did she leave she's mine she belongs to me who dared take her away why did she leave without writing tom yes sir 
said the well-drilled recruit, dressing himself up to the word of command. He expected a variation of the theme from the change of tone with which his name had been pronounced, but it was again, "'Where have they taken her to?' and this was even more perplexing to Tom than his hard sum in arithmetic had been. He could only draw down the corners of his mouth hard and glance up queerly. "'She had been crying? You saw that, Tom?' "'No mistake about that, Mr. Richard. Crying all night and all day, I should say.' "'And she was crying when you saw her?' "'She looked as if she'd just done for a moment, sir.' "'But her face was white, white as a sheet.' Richard paused to discover whether his instinct had caught a new view from these facts. He was in a cage, always knocking against the same bars, fly as he might. Her tears were the stars in his black night. He clung to them as golden orbs. Inexplicable as they were, they were at least pledges of love. The hues of sunset had left the west. No light was there but the steadfast pale eye of twilight. Thither he was drawn. He mounted Cassandra, saying, "'Tell them something, Tom. I shan't be home to dinner,' and rode off toward the forsaken home of light over Belthorpe, whereat he saw the wan hand of his Lucy waving farewell, receding as he advanced. His jewel was stolen. He must gaze upon the empty box. End of chapter 22